Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by Founders Card. I usually don't spring for paid membership programs, but this one is a little different. The offering is targeted to entrepreneurs and business owners, and the card enables premier benefits from leading airlines, hotels, lifestyle brands, and business services. A few of my favorite benefits include free access to MailChimp Pro, Dashlane Premium, and TripIt Pro. You can even get big discounts to services I love like Silvercar, 99designs, Apple, and AT&T. My favorite, though, are the travel benefits where you get an automatic status such as Hilton Honors Gold, American Airlines Platinum, and Virgin America Gold. And while I often use the great app Hotel Tonight for travel, the Founders Card discounts can be massive, too. If you go to founderscard.com forward slash Meb, podcast listeners can sign up for the discounted $395 a year with no initiation fee, and that's a saving from the normal cost of around $600 per year. Again, that's founderscard.com forward slash Meb. Good afternoon, podcast listeners. We're very excited today to have a special guest, Rick Edelman. Welcome to the show. I'm really glad to be with you, Meb. Thanks so much. Listeners, I'm sure all y'all are familiar with Rick, but he's a quick background for the younger crowd. He is a, is this your ninth book, Rick, by the way? It is. Yes, this is my ninth book. Uh, just published a new book, which we'll uh, get excited to talk about today. But he's done everything from being a professor to hosting his own radio show for, man, over 25 years. So it's good to have him on the other side of the mic. Also publishes a newsletter, testified before Congress, has been on Oprah, and in his spare time ran a registered investment advisor that now has over 30,000 individuals 42 offices, manages over $17 billion. So, Rick, let's, uh, his new book, which just hit the New York Times bestseller, congratulations, um, is called The Truth About Your Future, The Money Guide You Need Now, Later, and Much Later. The way this book flows is it talks a little bit about the future of, of technology and then how it applies to people's lives. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you get started by leading it in with a quote. You start Two quotes you start the book with, one which is Yogi Berra. You say, the future ain't what it used to be. And then lead on with talking a little bit about, you said, financial planning is all about anticipating and preparing for the future. You say a little bit that the, the future is going to look a lot different. Why don't, uh, why don't we get started there? Sure. Uh, It's really very true. Yogi Berra is right. Everybody is anticipating that their future will be similar to the way it has been for their parents and grandparents. We are, this is the way it's always been in history, and we act linearly. We assume that we're going to work until our 60s, we'll live until our 80s or 90s. Uh, that's the way it's always been, and uh, we know we're living a little bit longer, but you know that's what our future is, we think. And we have experienced a linear lifeline uh, historically, meaning you're born, you go to school, you get a job, 
You retire, you die. In that order, one at a time. That linear lifeline is going away. Instead, you are not going to go to uh, school, uh, work, retire, die. Instead, you're going to go to school. You're going to go to work. You're going to go back to school. You're going to emerge in a totally new career. You're going to go back to school, do it again, and then you're going to go on a sabbatical, not for a few weeks or a few months, but for a few years. And after your sabbatical, you're going to go back to school and emerge in yet another new career. And you're going to repeat this cycle forever. It's called the cyclical lifeline instead of a linear one. And the reason this is occurring is because you're not going to die in your 80s or 90s. Instead, you are likely going to live until you're 110 or 120. And because of that, the notion of retirement, as we've come to understand it, is going away. There's no way you're going to be able to retire at 65 if you're going to live to 125. No way you'll be able to afford a 60-year retirement, nor are you going to want to be retired for 60 years. Life will get very boring very quickly if you're not productive and engaged and participating in society. Um, so you are going to want to work. You're going to need to work economically as well. And here's the good news. You're going to be healthy enough to do this. Uh, a lot of folks fear the future. They fear old age because they picture Whistler's mother. And nobody wants to be sitting in a wheelchair looking out a window while drooling. I mean, that's just not exciting. But that's not the future you're going to have because of medical advances in the field of exponential technology, neuroscience, nanotechnology, bioinformatics, bionics. All of this means we're going to be far healthier in the future than we are today. All the leading diseases of today, heart disease, respiratory illness, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, all these are going to be cured. In fact, aging itself scientists are recognizing is simply a disease. It is not a natural part of the life cycle. And they are recognizing that they can slow disease and even reverse it. They've already done this in mice. And as a result, by the time you're 95 years old, you'll be as healthy as you are at 55 years old. And just as you are a vital, vibrant member of the community at 55, so will you be at 95 and 105 and 115. So that changes everything about our notion of retirement and working and longevity. But it gets a little dicey because robotics and artificial intelligence are going to eliminate most of the jobs that exist today. So although you're going to be healthy enough to work and you're going to want to work, Robots and uh, computers are going to take away a lot of existing occupations. New occupations are going to be created. But this means you're going to have to be retrained and going to become better educated and skilled in careers that, frankly, don't even exist yet. And that's why you're going to go back to school on a repeated basis to stay current and knowledgeable so that you can be viable and competitive in the, in the workplace. And this contributes to that cyclical lifeline I described. And so there's quite a bit in there in that in that great first intro. Um, so you're a young guy, by the way. What, what's 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 your target? What are you planning for yourself? Is this like a 110 years old? You're you're going to expect to live to? Oh, I, I'm fully expecting uh, well into my 100s. Um, awesome. And there are some futurists who say it's even going to be beyond that. Um, so, um, yeah, there's no question in my mind. The leading cause of death in the future will be accidents and stupidity. 
Well, I love it. You got Ray Kurzweil on the back of your book giving a recommendation. So I, I, I can see the influences there. So let, let's chop this up a little bit and we'll talk about a few of the technologies and impacts before eventually segueing into kind of the investment side. One of the things that probably concerns people most is, is, as you mentioned, jobs. And so there's a lot of jobs that are what we call not particularly, you know, not going to be around due to automation and robotics and encourage people to say, think about having a career or jobs that are a little more future proof. What, what are your thoughts of, on areas that are obviously going to be most impacted as well as um, you had a great example uh, in your book where you're talking about the editors at Car and Drivers saying, and this was only like a year or two ago, saying there will never be a fully autonomous car. <laughs> so yeah. may, maybe talk a little <laughs> bit about the, uh, the employment and job picture. Yeah, there are a lot of Luddites out there. There are a lot of people who are resistant to technology, who are in denial about technology, who don't like change. And I get it. We, none of us like change. We, we like things the way they are. And we certainly don't want disruption. But there's no denying that exponential technologies are dramatically improving the entire environment. Computers are getting faster. They're getting smaller. They're getting cheaper. And as a result of this, they're getting smarter. Because of their increased capacity and capabilities, computers and, by extension, robots are going to be able to do jobs that currently humans are doing. So any job that is predominantly repetitive, redundant, is going to be taken over by a computer or a robot. And an awful lot of jobs in America are exactly that. They are repetitive. Uh, and even high-paying jobs like lawyers and in the financial services industry. I'm not just talking about coal miners and ditch diggers uh, who are certainly engaged in a repetitive task. I'm not just talking about factory line workers who are the ultimate of repetitive tasks. Uh, lawyers and uh, accountants and financial services people uh, are going to find their jobs replaced by computers. There's already a robotic lawyer called Ross that has eliminated a lot of jobs of first-year uh, law firm associates. Uh, we already have computers writing news articles. Quill is a program that's used by the Associated Press, Forbes, and a number of other organizations that write uh, sports stories and, and other news articles, and humans are unable to determine the difference between a human art written article and a robotic written article. So we're going to see this continue in the future. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of simple examples. The iPhone, it's everybody is amazed at this, that the iPhone is only 10 years old. Can you remember, Meb, life without the iPhone? Well, I, I was thinking about it the other day when I was traveling somewhere and pulled up a bunch of maps and, and just literally thought for a second, I was like, my, my God, how in the world would I get around and I was in a foreign country, get around this place without this iPhone. I would have to talk to people. I would bumble and stumble. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost unfathomable at this point. And it's only 10 years old. But at the same time, let me ask you this. When's the last time you talked to a travel agent? You know, most of us, we use an app on the phone <laughs> to buy airline tickets and book hotels and car rentals. So travel agents are an industry that is dying, and people are losing their jobs left and right because of the smartphone. But at the same time, we now have 300,000 Americans working full-time as app developers. They're earning an average of $100,000 a year, three times as much as travel agents used to make. So we're seeing what technology does. It eliminates some jobs, but it creates brand new ones. So if you're looking at a career that you think, gee, 
is my current career at risk because of repetition or obsolescence? What kind of a career can I get into that will be able to take advantage of technology? It's four broad categories. Thinking, managing, creating, and communicating. Those are the careers that are going to grow in society as a result of technology. So you've got to think about this for what you want to do yourself, and you've got to think about this for your kids who are headed to college. Make sure they're studying fields that are not going to be obsolete due to technology. You know, that's interesting. Your talk about the iPhone makes me immediately think back to the first time I saw an iPhone. A buddy had it. We're sitting there watching football and he's showing to me. And and it was astonishing. It was an incredibly cool product. But I remember my response was, I was like, man, why would I want that? I have this amazing flip phone that does everything I need to do. And fast forward, you know, 50 iPhones later that I've had broken and and lost. But it just goes to show how quickly it can change. And so this is interesting takeaway because part of it, feels like at its core, it's going to be hard to prepare for the future where things are changing so fast, jobs are changing, the world's changing. But you're saying there's these four core elements. In Can you repeat them one more time for the guests um, on, on, on the skill sets? Yes. Uh, what I describe in my book, The Truth About Your Future, the four skill sets that are going to be viable and vital in the future, thinking, managing, creating, and communicating. Uh, those are the four things that computers will find it most difficult to do. In other words, it's judgment. It's relationship. It's your ability to invent an idea, to communicate it to others, to manage the process for execution and production and distribution, and to create that entire scenario. So thinking, managing, creating, and communicating are fields that are going to be very, very valuable going forward. You know, it's funny, as I read through this book, so many threads of my own life just came to mind. I mean, I remember talking to my father in college, and he was an engineer, and I ended up studying engineer, and he had great advice. He said, you know, Mev, study engineering and science, it'll be a great base, and it ended up being a great base, and of course, I don't do anything related to, to biotech anymore, but he also came from that generation that you talked about, where it was one job. I mean, he was a lifer at Lockheed and in and, and similar aerospace companies, and after about age 28, I'd had probably five jobs and he just, you know, pull his hair out thinking about it. And so you talk, we're not going to talk too much about it here because some other areas I want to talk about, but Rick has some great examples talking about the New York model versus the Hollywood model and all these other concepts about employment. Um, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but, but highly recommend taking a look at it. I, I wanted to segue briefly to thinking about you know, living longer and concepts around retirement. And something you mentioned in the book is you said, the demise of retirement is not something to lament, but to celebrate. And back then, and the, you know, you you when you started being an investment advisor, you were doing plans for people at eighty five. You know, with their life expectancy mm-hmm. now, you're saying 110, 120. Touch a little bit about how this is going to affect people's lives on on the longer life expectancy. And you even talk at one point, you say it's going to render n- nursing homes obsolete, which I think is, is maybe a, a atypical view of, of what people would assume that maybe would actually be the opposite. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about there before we get into the, the investment side. Sure. Uh, it, there's no question that health is going to get better. Uh, medical science is advancing at, at rapid paces. And so the reasons that people go to nursing homes are all going to go away. 
we're already replacing hips and knees. Uh, we're replacing hearts and, and livers and kidneys. Uh, in the future, we're going to replace every organ in the body. We're going to replace every joint, every muscle, every bone. Uh, we're going to be replacing things at the DNA level. We've already developed this thing called CRISPR, uh, which is a way for uh, scientists to edit DNA. We can now edit DNA as easily as you cut and paste in a Word document. And what this means is if you have a gene that's deformed or defective, they can replace it. If you're missing a gene, they can insert it. And as a result, we can dramatically improve the health of an individual at the molecular cellular level, at the atomic level through our DNA, which means your future is going to be healthier than ever. We're, this is how we're going to cure everything from not just diabetes, but obesity and alcoholism by affecting the DNA in our bodies. And so why on earth are we going to need nursing homes in the future? Uh, so those things go away. As a result, you're going to be living at home the way you do now, enjoying the lifestyle that, that you are engaging in today. But because you're going to live so much longer and be healthy so much longer, you're going to reinvent yourself several times in your life. It's already happening. According to the Department of Labor, the average 35-year-old in this country has had eight jobs. That's going to continue and grow in the future. So people who are, you know, they're a blank forever. They're a school teacher, a firefighter, an airline pilot uh, in the military, folks who have been a veterinarian for their career or a lawyer. These folks are not going to keep doing that for the next 60 years. They're going to quit, and they're going to go back to school and engage in something else and emerge in a totally new occupation or totally new career. So, yeah, you'll spend 20 years as a school teacher, but then you'll spend another 20 years uh, doing something completely different, maybe as a musician. Uh, and then you'll do that for 20 years, and you'll emerge again coming out in the field of social work. And you'll do that for 20 years. And then you'll leave that, and you'll go into public service. Uh, and you'll leave that, and you'll go do something else completely different in the field of computer programming or who knows what. And this cyclical environment where you are constantly doing something different is going to be extraordinarily exciting and fulfilling as well as economically rewarding. You know, that, that's interesting. Um, so, so Rick, you know, for someone who's done so much already, have you started thinking about, you know, your 60s, 70s, 80s? What, what, what other sort of career paths do you have in the, the back of your head? You got, you got anything you're marinating on? Sure. I've been engaging in this kind of behavior for a very long time myself. I mean, I, I created my financial planning firm 31 years ago with my wife, Jean. But along the way, I'm, I've also built a large uh, activity as a radio talk show host and a television talk show host and as an author of now nine books uh, and as a seminar leader and thought leader in the industry. I have several other business activities uh, on the side. For example, right now, we're looking to bring uh, minor league baseball to our, our local community. Um, so we're doing, you know, always engaged in a variety of things. I've always adopted the Hollywood model as opposed to the New York model of employment. I've always been fascinated by folks who have a single paycheck, one W-2, as opposed to having a multitude of them and a variety of different business interests and activities. So uh, I'll always engage in those kinds of things. One of the things I look forward to doing one day is learning how to play the piano. I have no musical skills of any kind, unlike both of my brothers who are both talented musicians, and I've always wanted to play the piano, and I know that I will in the future. There's no question about it. Well, that's perfect. You can, reco you can record the intro for your radio show, be Rick on the piano. Didn't interrupt you because we skipped over this. Could you define just real quick for the listeners what you mean by the New York versus Hollywood model? 
Sure. Uh, the, the New York model is the traditional method of employment that we're all used to. You, you have a job. You go to one place to do that job. Uh, you know, in New York, you go into a big sky-rise building, and you do a given thing, and you do it with the same people for the same customers on a repeated basis, uh, often for decades. You know, I often find people who say they've got 20 years of experience, and in fact, they don't. They have one year of experience 20 times because they just do the same thing for the same people all the time. That's the traditional New York model, and if you lose that one job, it's scary. You've got to go find a new one. The Hollywood model is very different, and it will be the format broadly used across the country in the future. In the Hollywood model, you have a group of people who come together for a specific project. You have a producer and a director and a, a screenwriter and an actor and a makeup designer and a costume designer, and the uh, music uh, gets written, and you have the caterer, and you have the limo driver, and you have all these different people coming together, the film editors, and on and on and on, who come together for a given project. And it's a short-term project. And once that project is finished, they disband and they go on to another project. And often they're working on multiple projects all the same time. And that's the model that is going to be more common in the workplace in America in the future and worldwide, in fact, where you will be engaged using your skills and abilities in a wide variety of activities all at the same time. You're not going to have this womb-to-tomb employment like we used to have in the past where you got out of school, you went to work for IBM and you stayed there until you retired 40 years later. That's not going to be the future. You're going to have a series of gigs, and those gigs are all going to be short-term, often simultaneous. That's the Hollywood model compared to the New York model. I was going to jokingly comment that living in LA, that the Hollywood model is actually most of my friends being quasi-employed as, as actors, but um, I, I get it. So look, look, this has been a good intro, and I think it's going to be a lot for people to chew on. And most of the people listen to this podcast because we talk a lot about investing and finance and, and planning. So let's segue now. Although I, I did want to ask you, um, you talked a little bit about 3D printing. Do you have a 3D printer yet, by the way? No, I don't. Uh, at this point, there's pretty much still toys at the consumer level. Uh, I've used 3D printers, and I'm real familiar with them. But at this point, their effective use is at the significant industrial level. They're not yet ready for home use. I, I just loved it because Rick says eventually you're going to have a 3D printer in your kitchen. And I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible cook, but a total chef science geek. So I have a blowtorch and a, a sous vide machine and everything else. I was trying to think of it. I would love that idea. Let's segue a little bit to the, the planning and, and lifetime finance implications. You know, you talk in the book and the, and the thread is, and it's a great kind of mindset. You say, you talk about your plan for now, your plan for later, and your plan for much later. So why don't we use that as a jumping off point? Because there's some elements of your lifetime financial plan that may be similar than in the past of our parents' generation, and then some that are going to be vastly different. Why don't I let you just kind of take that lead and, and, and run with it, and we'll, we'll kind of go down some different branches from there. Sure. Uh, in my book, The Truth About Your Future, I lay out the fact that you need three different financial plans, not just one. And the reason is because we're living so much longer uh, than ever before. And so you need a financial plan for now that focuses uh, predominantly on your immediate needs. For example, your need for insurance. 
What happens if you suffer an injury or illness right now or death? What You need uh, cash reserves in case you lose your job or you have an unexpected medical expense. You need uh, a financial plan now for privacy protection. Increasingly, our lives are being lived online. Uh, you know, In the old days, you took your family photographs, put them in a photo album, shoved them in the closet. If you died, your kids went to the closet, they got the photos. But today, those photos are all online. They're on Facebook. They're on Pinterest. They're uh, on a variety of different uh, online sites. Password protected. How does your family get a hold of your online life if they don't have access to those online accounts. Your your banking is now being done online. Your brokerage activities are being done online. Your health insurance um, is online. So we need to protect our digital assets uh, online and incorporate them in our estate planning. So you need a financial plan for now based on today's uh, world that we're living in. Second, we need a financial plan for later. Of helping you transition over the next couple of decades as robotics and artificial intelligence permeate in the marketplace and wipe out a lot of jobs. According to Oxford University, 47% of the occupations in America will be gone within 15 years. So half of Americans are going to find themselves having to go get new jobs in brand new careers, often fields that don't currently exist. So we need a financial plan to help us figure out how to transition and how to sustain our lifestyle while we're engaged in that transition. That's the financial plan for later. And then finally, our financial plan for much later. When you're going to live 50, 60, 70 more years, we need to take a completely different approach to insurance, to investments, and to our estate planning. If you have seven generations living in your family and you have a variety of relationships because of multiple marriages and children from a variety of uh, uh, scenarios, this requires a dramatic change in review over our estate planning, our investment management strategy, and our insurance. So you need a financial plan for much later as well. All right. So there's a lot to to chew on in in that discussion. Why don't we talk about investments is a, is a first part. And how is sort of this view of the future in this rapidly changing environment, how does that impact your views on, say, asset allocation for both a young person and older person? Does it change anything? And, and what are the main considerations that they would uh, need to think about in investing for the next 10 to 100 years? Yeah, it, it, it changes things in two very important ways. First, we need to dramatically increase our asset allocation to equities, meaning stocks. We have to, you know, the big issue is how much of your money should be in stocks versus bonds. Most Americans have far too little of their money in stocks. And most people, as they age, further reduce it. The attitude is that a 65-year-old should be far more conservative than a 25-year-old. That it, that makes sense if you're dead in 10 years, but it doesn't make sense if you're going to live another 60. So we need to increase allocation of stocks, and we need to maintain that increase for a much longer period of time. That's the first piece. Most people have an asset allocation model that's flawed. That's number one. Number two is the kind of stocks are in your portfolio. The majority of companies were built for the 20th century. And companies, David Rose said this, he's one of the uh, top angel investors in America, a brilliant writer himself, and and he said that if you are investing in a company 
or rather any company created for the 20th century will fail in the 21st. And the best example I can give you is Kodak. This is a company that's 135 years old, 170,000 employees, and yet it went bankrupt in 2012 because nobody is using film anymore. They are instead taking photographs with digital photography, and Kodak couldn't make the shift. So the year they went broke, come along Instagram, a company that's less than two years old and is sold for a billion dollars with only 13 employees because it took advantage of digital photography. So we have to recognize the companies we're investing in are probably not the ones that are going to survive and thrive in the future. Look at Tesla. came out of nowhere, and it now has a market value bigger than Ford. Look at Airbnb, the world's largest hotelier, doesn't own any hotels. So we need to be investing in companies for the 21st century as opposed to companies for the 20th. You know, and, and so how does one do that? I mean, I, the, the basics, I know the a first step, of course, would be to, to index. So you're guaranteed to own the winners as they become a bigger part. How, how do you actually implement that? Are, are you using mutual funds, ETFs? Well, this was a real challenge. And as I began and continued my research in the field of exponential technologies, I began to realize this point that we need to invest in companies that are focusing on the future, that are using technology to grow their and develop their businesses. And I discovered that there was no mutual fund, not a single ETF, that had a focus on exponential technologies and companies that are exploiting them. So I went three years ago, in 2014, I went to BlackRock, the world's largest money manager. BlackRock owns iShares, the biggest ETF producer in the, in the world. And I asked BlackRock to create an ETF that focuses on companies that are growing based on exponential technologies. BlackRock loved the idea. They went to Morningstar and asked Morningstar to construct an index, which Morningstar did, and they call it the Morningstar Exponential Technologies Index. They licensed it to BlackRock, and BlackRock introduced two years ago, uh, this month, in fact, it was March of 2015, BlackRock introduced the iShares Exponential Technologies ETF, symbol XT. Uh, I have no financial stake in that uh, ETF. I just asked them to build it, uh, so we don't earn any fees or compensation from its existence. But we have placed virtually all of our clients into that ETF because we believe that it makes an awful lot of sense. And the construction of the CTF is simple. Morningstar identified 200 companies from around the world, most of them are overseas, that are either developing or using exponential technologies to grow their companies. And we believe that this is the proper kind of a focus that consumers should have, and we believe that XT belongs in a client's portfolio for long-term stock investment. And by the way, listeners, that's been a very successful product up around a billion in assets under management. Rick, so one of the challenges, as you know, you've been you've been doing this for 30 years on managing money is the behavioral aspect of clients. And so right. one, one of the um, difficulties for what you mentioned is in a, in a particularly equity centric portfolio course is the drawdowns in bear markets. And we haven't seen one of those in a while. A lot of my young millennial friends are, I think, expecting 12, 15% equity returns forever. 
because I've never been through one. But of course, bear markets are normal and they happen. What what is what is kind of your solutions to either nudges or ways to help clients kind of stay the course, particularly when they have a a large equity uh, portfolio? This is, I think, one of the most valuable services that financial advisors provide. I know that it's an extraordinarily important function we give to our clients, which is the handholding, which is the sounding board, helping our clients make the right decision at the right time for the right reason. Because left to their own devices, as you pointed out, uh, Meb, that most consumers, most investors are their own worst enemies. We are victims of emotion. We tend to uh, react to either fear or greed. Fear, we sell low. Greed, we buy high. And as a result, we're buying when we should be selling. We're selling when we should be buying. We're doing the wrong thing at the wrong time for the wrong reason. And by using us as a sounding board with our experience and our expertise and the fact that we're dispassionate, because it's not my money at the end of the day, it's yours, we're able to provide our clients with a calm, professional, measured evaluation of what's happening to help them avoid doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. So I I would argue that you should approach money the same way that alcoholics approach whiskey. You know, these folks, when, when, when you look at alcoholics who are recovering, that's what the 12-step program is all about. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. They recognize that their own willpower isn't enough to help them stay sober. That's why they rely on a mentor, why they rely on a coach, why they rely on a, on a friend to help them stay straight and narrow when they are personally weakening or finding themselves threatened. And our clients are the same thing. So before they sell, they call us and they talk to us. And by having that conversation, we can often refocus them back to what really matters and help them avoid the behavioral mistakes that afflict so many investors. Vanguard has a great study that talks about advisors and and tries to quantify their benefit. And and interestingly enough, and we agree with this, they they state that the largest benefit, of course, is the the behavioral coaching or keeping people from doing dumber things that they would already do. And, and a lot of this you see in the mutual fund data, the, the classic Russ Kennel studies at Morningstar called Mining the Gap on how the dollar-weighted flows for a lot of funds trail the um, the, the time-weighted flows because because people chase, like you said, the hot markets and, and vice versa. So, Rick, I, I sat in on a panel you did a few years ago at the ETF.com conference, and um, it was in the early days of all the excitement about robo-advisors. And you were paired on the panel with Adam Nash, who is the, the CEO of Wealthfront, who is no longer the CEO of Wealthfront. But maybe help uh, our listeners talk a little bit about from from someone who's been managing money a long time to kind of relay your thoughts on that trend in robo advisory, because you touch on it a little bit in the book and and how uh, your your views on it and and kind of your views on how that will kind of evolve in the future for both investors as well as advisors. Yeah, my firm built one of the first robo-advisors, Edelman Online, which is still functioning today and doing just fine. Um, So I've been very much involved with robo-advisors since the beginning. It has evolved, as you've noted, uh, very much so. And uh, so what it really comes down to is that in the early days, uh, and maybe you remember this uh, very well, in the early days... It was an us versus them conversation. You had brick and mortar advisors, you know, human advisors, and then you had the online robo advisor. And both sides hated each other. 
bashed each other, talked about the negatives of the other guy, and considered each other to be a competitive threat. That conversation has gone away, as I predicted it would. What we're now seeing is the inevitability of the future. We're recognizing that neither one will survive in the future independently. As a human advisor, I must use technology to help me deliver effective client advice and service for my clients. And the robos are discovering that online algorithms are insufficient to meet the demands of consumers. So all of the online sites are adding human advisors to their efforts. So you're seeing a morph. You've seen BlackRock, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, everybody's launching. Wells Fargo's just announced theirs. Everybody's launching a robo-advisor. All the brick-and-mortar guys are doing it, and the robos are adding humans to their offerings. So it's not a question of us versus them. It's recognizing that there are attributes, there are qualities, there are abilities that each offers, and everybody's going to be offering everything to the benefit of the ultimate end user, which is the investor. So um, if you're not doing this, if you're an advisor and you are resisting technology, you're gone. You will not survive in the marketplace for long. And if you are an investor who's happily using an online service, you will discover that you aren't getting all of the services that you need, and you're going to need to turn to an advisor for what you're missing. You know, a lot of your views at that time and still today uh, aligned very much with what we believed. And, you know, thinking about it, it's it's kind of happened to where uh, the killer business model clearly has become kind of this cyborg advisor, meaning a traditional financial advisor aided by the use of technology. My favorite comment on this space is, is our buddy Josh Brown, who years ago said said it best. He says, look, I was around when email got introduced. And when all the financial advisors started using email, they didn't start calling us email advisors, just like they're not going to start calling us robo advisors today. So, But I do believe that the traditional advisors that derive their whole um, value add from just the asset allocation process are the ones that likely will be in trouble. Because for the most part, um, the friends at ETF.com published a piece update yesterday talking about the cheapest portfolio in the world. And you can get an asset allocation ETF or portfolio for less than 25 bips at this point, all the way down to less than 10 if you if you really wanted to try. So, But the value add, like you mentioned, the behavioral coaching, the estate planning, all the other goodies is, is really what is, is going to be kind of the future-proof part of the advisory business. There was something really cool in your book that just was a tiny box that I had never heard of that I thought was interesting. And to the extent you can talk about it, would love to hear about it. You would develop something, and I think it's even patented, called, uh, and, and I may get the name wrong, but um, it's an e-trust. Uh, and could, could you maybe talk about that? And it's an interesting, as we were talking about behavioral nudges and long-term time horizons, could you talk a little bit about that, that concept? Yes, uh, it's the Ricky Trust, the Retirement Income for Everyone Trust. Uh, I uh, introduced this into the marketplace in the 1990s, and it's patented. I have two patents. I don't know how many advisors have any patents, but I've got two of them for this. It's a unique retirement planning tool for children. We invented it for people to be able to set money aside for a child as young as a newborn. We've discovered over the years that many people provide them for children who are much older than newborn. 
newborns. Uh, the oldest uh, was established for uh, a child who's 54. Uh, so, uh, but a lot of them get established for teenagers and kids in their 20s and, and so on. And it's a real simple concept. Parents today know how hard it is to save money for the future. And the most common thing people say to us at our seminars is, I wish I'd started 20 years ago. You know, we're all in our 40s and 50s, and we know we squandered our 20s and our 30s because we didn't give, we didn't think about our future. We thought we had plenty of time, and now we realize we blew 10 or 20 or 30 years worth of savings opportunity. And parents are realizing, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could do this for my kid? Well, the problem is that you can't. Under current tax law and under the current investment methodology, there's really no effective way for you to open an account for a newborn knowing for sure that that money will remain intact when the child is 65 years old. And that's what the Ricky Trust is. It's a patented retirement planning tool that allows you to set money aside for a child of any age. In fact, it doesn't even have to be a child. You can do this for anybody, uh, friend, family, niece, nephew, grandchild, what have you. And it's a minimum of $5,000. There's a one-time setup fee of $400. And it's an irrevocable trust, meaning that once the money is placed into the trust, the money stays there and is never touched. It's untouchable, in fact, until retirement age. You set the age when the child is able to get the money. And we fund these irrevocable trusts with a variable annuity. We use the Polaris variable annuity, which allows the money to grow on a tax-deferred basis. So there's never before been in a way that you could set money aside for 50, 60, 70 years, 80 years with no taxes, knowing for sure that the money will be there untouched. And uh, there are now 4,000 or 5,000 children who are future beneficiaries of Ricky Trusts as a result of this. You know, we, we think a lot about that. And as, as an advisor who does separate accounts as well as ETFs, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking of of how best to package and behavioral ideas about having people really truly think long term. And one of the benefits of, of private equity or private funds per se is these really t- long time horizons that you just can't sell if you didn't want to, or if you wanted to even. The problem, of course, is, is the high fees. But coming up with some of these concepts, and we were literally joking about this in the office yesterday, some ideas called something like a forever fund that you know enables money to compound for a long time, but keeps people from really... Right doing the dumb stuff. You know, um, kind of in the same vein, that, that there's probably some policy challenges that, you know, our country and, and we're going to face in the future. Talk a little bit about how you, you see um, longer lifetimes for people. How is that going to impact certain things on the investing side for like social security, pension funds, and, and retirement in general? What, and what else should be people thinking about or not necessarily thinking about that they may not be prepared for? Yeah, longevity is a huge issue. Uh, the Social Security system is under threat, as we all know. The Congressional Budget Office says by 2030, uh, it's broke. Uh, benefits, if nothing has changed, benefits are going to get cut 30% and taxes are going to rise 20%. So we recognize that this is a huge problem. Next month, in fact, I am introducing my solution to Social Security. We have uh, an event at the National Press Club on April 19th 
in just a couple of weeks to reveal uh, my solution to this problem um, because it is a huge national issue. It's probably the, the most significant issue affecting retirees in the nation. The, so the good news is we're going to live longer than ever, but the bad news is Social Security can't afford to pay for all those retirees. So this is a huge issue we have to deal with. Likewise, pensions are severely at risk on the same basis because the actuarial data is not assuming that people are going to live into their hundreds at all. They're assuming they're going to die in their 80s instead. So people who are promised pensions have to recognize that those promises are probably going to be unfulfilled. And as a result of that, we have to dramatically change the assumptions we're using and the expectations we have of financial security. So your future more than ever is going to be dependent on you and your behavior, your actions. And the sooner you recognize it, the sooner you deal with it, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, we, we also mentioned the challenge on the pension funds, at least in the, the shorter term with lower interest rates and, and potentially lower expected return on equities. The challenge is those, a lot of those fun, um, funds being underfunded as well. You know, the traditional 8% uh, expected return may have made sense in a world of 4 or 5% inflation, but really down the 0 to 2% inflation world with, with interest rates maybe at 2%, it's going to be a much higher hurdle. Um, it'll be interesting, interesting time. Um, we, we wrote a paper, we'll put it in the show notes called what if 8% is 0% pension funds investing with eyes closed and fingers crossed. That's a mouthful. That's, it's been our least downloaded paper of all time. And you can probably see why. Um, but it's eyes closed and fingers crossed. That's a great description of what's going on right now. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I, don't even get me to go down this rabbit hole. This could be another whole hour talking about you know institutional investors making a lot of similar mistakes as behavioral investors. I just saw a great chart in Germany that aligns very much in the U.S. But you know when when the pension funds invested most in stocks, of course, it was late '90s, early 2000, and and in Germany at least it's now they've gone down to some of the lowest levels ever. Um, anyway, one one question for you, and then we're gonna we're gonna do a couple of quick hits and and promise to let you go. I know I know you're um, working in New York City. Something that's always bothered me, and I don't understand, and it's it's more of a just um, thought question. Since it's one of the most useful and relevant skill sets to know, why is personal finance not taught in a high school or general education curriculum? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I'll give you the the, the, the the bottom line reason for this. I've been heavily involved over the past couple of decades in financial literacy activities with the Jumpstart Coalition, uh, with the American Savings uh, Education Council, with um, the Employee Benefit Research Institute, and, and, and other groups. And, and I can tell you exactly why. It's because of the NEA. Uh, it's because the teachers' unions don't want to teach personal finance. And there are two reasons they don't want to teach it. Number one, they don't understand it. You know, a school teacher can only teach you subject matter that they know about. So they emerge from college as a science teacher or an art teacher or a phys ed teacher or a math teacher or a literature teacher. They don't emerge from college as a personal finance educator. So they, they can't teach what they don't know. That's the first problem. The second problem are the standards of learning. They have so many mandates from the government at the federal and state level already of what they must teach that the last thing they want is another requirement. So when I go to meetings uh, of um, Jumpstart or ASAC or, or these other groups in the room, 
always you find academics, you find corporate sponsors, you find government officials, you find uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, you find financial services uh, representatives. The one group that's not in the room are educators. And so right now you only have 17 states in the in the country that require high school to students to take a personal finance class, only 17 states. And of the 17, of only 14 require that they actually take a test. Uh, that's the problem, is that we have not institutionalized this into the educational curriculum on a national basis. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating. Maybe maybe that's on the to do list uh, in, in the coming years. A, c- a couple quick questions, and I promise we'll let you go. Two uh, quick questions that popped in from Twitter. I said, "Hey, I, I'm going to have Rick on the show. What do you want to ask?" Uh, and one person said, "If you were to start an advisory firm from scratch today, uh, what would you be doing differently this time?" And and I, I'm guessing the answer is probably it. It's what you're doing now with your advisory firm, but I'll, I'll ask it as as pure as, as it was asked. So what would you be doing differently this time? Yeah, I think the question is in the context of, you know, how do you build a successful practice in today's world? Uh, and I would do it the exact opposite of what I did last time. In other words, I, I'm pretty well known for having built uh, a very large, broad national firm through mass media, uh, through broadcasting. You know, I've been doing radio and television for 25 plus years and my books on a national basis and seminars nationally. We'll do 600 seminars this year across the country and, and so on. Broadcasting has changed dramatically over the past couple of decades, and and the way that I engaged in radio and television literally doesn't exist today. It's not that I'm better and nobody can do what I do. It's just the model doesn't exist. The the world of radio and the, the economic business model of radio and TV is just totally changed. So I would not say that anybody should try to do what I do. Every so often somebody says, Rick, I'd like to host a radio show. And my response is, you're out of your mind. Instead of being a broadcaster, if I were going to start over today, I would be a narrow caster. And what do I mean by that? I would choose the market segment that interested me the most, and I would delve deep into that target. For example, if you became an expert on the financial planning and investment management needs of plumbers, you wouldn't need to have anybody as a client other than a plumber. You would go to the plumbing convention. You would write an article for the plumber's magazine. You would know everything there is to know about the plumbing business and the people in it and the economics of it. And you would be known across the country by plumbers everywhere as the guy. But an electrician will never have heard of you, nor would an airline pilot or a school teacher or uh, an office executive or a retiree. Wouldn't matter because there are so many plumbers in this country, you can make a perfectly fine living as the plumber guy. And so I would narrowcast. Medicine has been doing this for decades. I met a surgeon the other day. The only thing he does is operate on thumbs. That's a pretty narrow specialty. But everybody knows if you've got a problem with your thumb, that's the guy you go to. And people fly all over the country to have him do surgery on their thumbs. 
and we have medical specialties. We also have that in the field of law. There are highly specialized practices in law. But in our business, we still don't do that for the most part. Advisors are happy to work with any client they can come upon. The only criteria is that they have a pulse. So I would argue that you should narrow cast. Choose the market segment, the type of individual, either demographically or psychographically, that you want to work with and work with them exclusively. You know, I got a couple comments there. One, um, it's funny you talk about doctors because, you know, there's there's a lot of talking about the future proof of what type of doctors. And there's a classic example of, you know, the the radiologist saying, hey, that that's one, despite the fact how much money they make may, may be in jeopardy. But I think thumb, proof, uh, thumb doctor, with the amount that people are playing apps on their phones and swiping left and swiping right, that that might be a booming business for years to come. The second is, is, what you mentioned about narrow casting is so true because some of the most successful RIs we see are like there's some in SoCal here where they focus purely on defense employees that used to be a huge business here, but still is with um, Northrop Grumman and SpaceX, et cetera. And they memorize their plans and focus exactly knowing how, you know, their options work and the retirement and everything. And, and similar, um, you mentioned to doctors and et cetera. And I think that's a, a great piece of advice, but it also applies to content. And so, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to me to see these little super niche ideas or concepts of, of content online where someone's writing about, you know what, I'm only writing about uh, porter style beers that are brewed in the U.S., and has thousands, if not millions of followers or interested people. And it also, it applies to publishing as, as well as monetization as well, where if you, uh, you know, in a world of, you know, how many, six, seven, eight, nine, ten billion people, there's going to be 10,000 that are probably super interested in Porter beers, if not 100,000. So I think that's great advice. One question we always ask guests is, what is your most memorable investment? And this could be winner, loser, tra trading instrument, anything to, to take, to, uh, take to mind, but most memorable inv investment in your career. Of course, we always prefer to remember the winners. <laughs> We're all trying to forget the losers. Um, there, there were two, um, uh, and, it, and, and one was uh, dumb luck. Uh, the other one was an astonishing level of obviousness that proves how most investors don't read. The one that was dumb luck was uh, a bank stock. A bank got taken over, um, and because it got taken over, it sold for a 30% premium, which was very exciting. But then... Three weeks later, the bank that acquired it itself got taken over with another 30% premium. So there was this massive profit in an extraordinarily short period of time, the kind of thing that will never happen again. It was literally getting struck by lightning twice. It was kind of amazing. Uh, the other one goes back to very early days of my career, uh, and I have to credit one of my clients who uh, was in this. He was in the radio industry, a radio executive, and he started buying the stock of a company in the radio industry. And I didn't understand, and I asked, eventually asked him, why was he doing this? Uh, he was you know, ignoring my advice of diversification and risk and all that kind of stuff. And he said, because they've just filed a 10K with the SEC that says they are going to be required to purchase uh, to sell their business, uh, somebody has to buy them, and they have to pay this dollar amount, $20 a share. And I went and looked at the 10K, and that's exactly what it said. So here, they were basically 
acknowledging to the world that in a couple of months, the stock would be $20 a share, which was a huge increase over its current price. And I said, isn't this insider trading? We're like, no, it was filed with the SEC. That makes it the most public of all documents. So it was just an illustration that you know everybody should have been aware of this, but nobody was because nobody bothers reading 10Ks. Um, so it just demonstrates that if you do your research, you can come upon investment opportunities as opposed to listening to the guy at the other end of the bar talking about a hot stock tip that he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's funny. The um, listeners, the, one of the best parts about the book is uh, you need to make it all the way through because at the end, uh, Rick's wife talks about in, in kind of an epilogue and uh, talks about the other side of money and so much on this podcast. And, and we spend so much time talking about investing and personal finance and everything on, on focus on accumulating the money. But also there's the flip side, which is, of course, how we spend it and and what you guys call the other side of money. And you seem to be a bit of an optimist, Rick. And I, and I like kind of a quote you have where you mentioned that this will be the greatest time of our lives. Maybe touch on that real quick as, as kind of a last thought before uh, we start to close down. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of fear about technology, robotics and AI we've talked about, but we didn't even mention big data and uh, all the other elements of technology that's coming, and it's unsettling. Disruption is nerve-wracking. But you know what? You put it all together, and we are going to enjoy an age of abundance like we have never seen in, in human history. We're going to solve all of our current problems. We'll create a whole bunch of new ones, but the current problems of poverty and famine and crime and health, aging, all these issues go away. Energy, water, uh, food, uh, education, all these these problems go away, and we're going to be finding ourselves in an opportunity to live happier, healthier lives, engaged with our families and our communities in a way we have never contemplated. And it's going to be extraordinarily exciting, and even more so if you are aware of what's coming and make preparation for it. That's basically the theme of my entire book, The Truth About Your Future. It's great. You know, we have a quote that was on our first book and, and still sits on our blog today from George Mallory that says, we do not live to eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to live. That's what life means and what life is for. Rick, thanks so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. We'll have to have you back on in five years to see what your next career path is. Um, where, where can people find more information if they want to learn more about uh, your business and books and everything else? You can go to my website at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com and the book and the truth about your future.com. Awesome. Rick, thanks so much for coming on today. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen. We would always welcome feedback and questions through the mailbag at feedback at the As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, send Jeff a bottle of tequila and please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. This podcast is sponsored by the Soothe app. We all know how stressful investing in volatile markets can be. That's why I use Soothe. Soothe delivers five-star certified massage therapists to your home, office, or hotel in as little as an hour. They bring everything you need for a relaxing spa experience without the hassle of traveling to a spa. Podcast listeners can enjoy 30 bucks to their first Soothe massage with the promo code MEB. Just download the Soothe app and insert the code before booking. Happy relaxation.